Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. So before we get into today's episode, I just want to mention to you that you need to check out all the work we're doing on social media. So don't worry about Instagram, don't worry about LinkedIn, don't worry about Pinterest and those types of things. Where you're going to find me is on Twitter. Every single day I'm on Twitter. We're sharing a lot of the thoughts, a lot of the tips, a lot of the breaking news is coming out on Twitter. And then add to that our expat money forum. We are doing so much amazing things in the forums. There's special content that's not found anywhere else. There's a lot of networking. There's just so much happening on this forum that I really hope you get a chance to participate. And you can access that at expatmoneyforum.com. So find me on Twitter at Thora Mikkel or join the forum at Expat Money Forum. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is an international businessman and global citizen who made his first million dollars in his 20s. While earning multiple licenses within the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, he built an in-depth foundation and knowledge in finance and the international markets. Possessing an entrepreneurial spirit to the core, he's gone on to participate in starting and acquiring companies in jurisdictions all over the planet, with both successful and targeted exits in the millions and billions of dollars. Today, he manages private equity and hedge funds around the world. Please welcome to the show, David Amen. David, how are you? Quite well. Thanks for having me on here, brother. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Um, why don't you take a, fo- a couple of minutes and talk us through your backstory? How did you start working in the offshore markets? How did you start working in private equity and offshore hedge funds and all these cool things that we're going to be discussing today? Wow, that's a that's that's a big one. You know, one of the, the big pieces that just jumps out at me is um, <clears throat> currency arbitrage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that, you know, for instance, I'm American born and in the U.S. money is cheap, money is abundant, uh, opportunities and returns are not so much. And me being somebody who is, uh, you know, somewhat of a consider myself a global citizen, popping about the globe, multiple uh, countries and multiple continents on the month. Uh, I see what goes on on one side of the pond and the other, uh, one side of a border and another. And it just it, it's real simple math. It's addition and subtraction, frankly. Mm-hmm. I'm a numbers geek, so I go. I, I can go beyond that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe multiplication, division, forget about it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's not that challenging. Uh, there are jurisdictions that want more money, mm-hmm. 
and there are jurisdictions that have more money. Mm -hmm. Generally, they have more. It's more accessible. And they want more. It's more expensive. And uh, we just pick up the spread in between. So. So how did you end up working in this? Like, tell me a little bit more about your background so my listeners understand, you know, where this came about. Because, I mean, we've done over 100 episodes. I've never had someone who works in international, you know, offshore hedge funds. And this is something that you read about in books. This is not something that you get to meet people every day on the street who do this type of work. So I'm super curious, and, and I believe my listeners will be as well. Yeah, fantastic. Um you know, there are opportunities. Um, there's investing opportunities. And the funny thing, there's actually this cultural this this cultural distinction. A lot of times folks outside the U.S. don't want their money coming to the U.S. Uh, they're concerned about taxes. You know, there's a bad reputation about once you get in that system, you're locked in that system. And there's a lot of folks in the U.S., for instance, um, who are, they suffer from this disease called scary world syndrome. And, uh, you know, and they're concerned, well, oh, we don't want our money going outside the U.S. And the interesting thing is I get to straddle by spending most of my life, frankly, outside the U.S. Um, in different countries. I actually get to straddle that line and I get to uh, assist and take care of you know, folks who in the U.S. They want to diversify and get the money out, um, you know, and, and do the true offshore direction as far as investments go, um, which, by the way, uh, you know, unlike the uh, reputation, is perfectly legal, <laughs> both in the U.S. and out of the U.S. Um, but uh, and then this on the other side, you know, we get to blend funds as far as funds coming in from whether it's the Middle East, it's Europe, it's Latin America. Um, we get to take those and and move some of those funds across borders to where we all benefit. And there's a high level of symbiosis to where it's just a matter of a rising tide raises all boats. Mm -hmm. But how did you get into this? Was this something that you like always wanted to do? Did you study finance? Were you traveling and then just decided, you know, why don't I share my knowledge? Or what was that kind of jump? What was that leap there? Yes. <laughs> just a flat <laughs> yes, eh? Just, I'll, I'll go with yeah. that one. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that, that was it. <laughs> Done. Um, so I stu I've studied finance. I mean, as far as money and finance, I've studied it for years since I was early double digits, maybe even single digits. I actually, funny, funny little side note, right? A little sidebar. My sister and I, she's uh, you know two and a half years younger than me. I actually created a currency. So I was the I was the original crypto, right? Satoshi um, Nakamoto here in here that's in the it. Oh, oh. <laughs> 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 But it was a fiat. It was an absolute fiat because I got to totally control it. It was backed by nothing except for the fact that at the beginning of the day, I started with all the currency, and then I got to pay her for whatever I want to negotiate and. You know, I kind of, I, I started that, that was single digits for sure, like five years old or yeah. so. Was that Monopoly but, or what did we game of life? Yeah, well, it wasn't Monopoly. It was these little, okay, so my <laughs> mother worked like as a bookkeeper uh, way back when for, you know, some drugstore. And they had these files that had these uh, crimped on metal rectangular tabs or what have you. And they were actually, they were embossed. It was the number, the file number. Okay. Right. So we called them clickety clanks. Oh. That was actually the, yeah, because that's the noise they made when they, <laughs> you know, we ripped them off and they clicked around. It's and, a, to be uh, fair, it's better name than a lot of the, uh, the digital tokens <laughs> that I've heard out there uh, at the moment. So I'll give you that one. <laughs> 
Well, maybe I should go into naming yeah. currency. Set. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. See, the, see, the new whole, ICO wave. That's exactly it. So, uh, you know, that's that's. I look back and and kind of restudy myself and say, what made me up and why? I'm, why do I do what I do? Um, as far as what got me there, I've, I did study finance. You know, at an early age, I worked for a large institution on the bank side. They recruited me over to the security side. Uh, got multiple licenses and. The education was there. I let my licenses lapse um, intentionally because uh, now I can speak freely. Um, you know, licenses, the education's good. The licenses, not so much. A lot of times that's one of my jams, so to speak, is I'll actually study something. I get into something, whether it's psychology or uh, or law or finance or what have you. And there in finance, I did get licenses. Since then, I do the studies, but I don't necessarily get the licenses because I understand that, wait a second, now I actually have more restrictions. The education is, is putting me forth, but the uh, licenses, wait, I can't say that, I can't say this. And as far as coupling it, um, <clears throat> you know, as my kids started getting older, uh, and me personally actually going through being a couple, having kids to becoming a single father uh, many moons ago, and I started, I spread my wings and started traveling and actually started realizing that's more who I am. Uh, be before that, I was a guy who lived in one zip code my whole life, one postcode, whole life, right? For decades. Yeah. Uh, didn't even, you know, move a few square miles. That was it, kilometers. And so when I start marrying these two, my, you know, my interest in finance, in money and how economic systems work and then travel, and it just become it does become really really apparent that wait a second money is inexpensive here it's very expensive there there is that spread and um, and the ability to take from the knowledge from different industries because of having I have holdings in in many different industries um, some that are virtual some that are brick and mortar brick and mortar is uh, definitely less. As time goes on, that becomes a little bit more of the dinosaur dodo bird. Uh, not totally outdated, but not totally up to date. And the ability to actually, I see things in a different manner. Um, well, you know, in studying myself, so to speak, uh, what I came to realize just a few years ago is the fact that neurologically, you know, our left neocortex is where we have data, language, ego, numbers. Our right neocortex, right brain, is where we are frequently we have uh, intuition, um, uh, uh, emotions, and uh, like art, right? Well, I'm a numbers geek, so I just know that that's who I am, how I'm built. I thrive on that stuff. I get into it, and people go, whoa, you just, you like went into the zone, like I just light up, and people go, whoa, there it is. And um, what I came to realize is that I artistically express myself most frequently through strategy. And so if I take my numbers geek side and my strategic artistic side and we put them together, I never feel like I'm working. And that's why I'm one of those geeks who will read a textbook on the weekends. And mm -hmm. Yeah, we were chatting uh, before the interview and just kind of swapping a few stories. And uh, I, I can definitely relate. Like I go into things that other people would just totally fall asleep at and i'm like there's just some light reading and it's like university textbooks like i never went to university i never got i've never even finished high school i'm a complete self-taught autodidact i don't have license for anything of, 
of this. But I don't think anyone who would ever meet me would ever consider me uneducated. Because I think a lot of times people need to understand that there is definitely a difference between you know, that piece of paper and actually know and understanding things. And then what is the difference between doing it in real life or just, you know, reading about it in a textbook, you know? Like, I like to read, I like to geek out on this stuff too, but I mean, I wanna do it from, I wanna read about things for people who have actually done it. You know, I'm not looking from the, the professor at the university who's never opened a business, started a business, ran a business, grown a business, scaled a business, taken a business profitable. I mean, that's not who I wanna learn from. So it's interesting to hear that, um, you know, you actually went through a lot of the formal education, got your certificates and licenses, and then made a conscious decision to let it lapse because strategically it worked better for you and your industry. So I really like that. Yeah, thanks, brother. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly it. Um, it's something that uh, I just have so much fun. Uh, I mean, that's that's the thing is is people think that it's it's a lot of hard work and so on. And and yeah, there's things that you don't want to do necessarily. But uh, you know, I work in 38 time zones. Doesn't matter where I am. That's that's how I go. I get up in the morning. I get to contribute to others. You know, I wake up with wonderment before my alarm. It's a rare time that I sleep till my alarm. I mean, just it's rare. It's there as a safety net, but that's it. It's just a safety net, so I can actually sleep and and not think about oh, what time is it? What time is it? But the truth of the matter is, I get to get up and I get to see how do I get to contribute to somebody because that's what I you know it takes a minute for us, especially guys. Sometimes it takes a little longer to figure out. Hey, what makes us tick? Um, Instead of doing things for other people and. And uh, so the ability- I understand that. Yeah. Well, I, th I think there's easier ways to do, to make money than the ways that I do. I mean, my niche is pretty, pretty focused, you know? North Americans who have a libertarian leaning, who want to move overseas and legally pay no tax and invest uh, abroad. Also, you know, if you have a streak of adventure running through you, it's probably <laughs> a bonus as well. So that's a pretty specialized uh, niche. You know, I could probably just uh, make widgets or something like that and uh, not have it to learn as much. But for me, at the end of the day, I like what I do. I think it's a lot of fun. I like, just as you said, geeking out on all these types of things. So I want to dig into specifically today about private equity and private equity outside of the U.S. and Canadian financial markets, why someone might want to consider something like that. What is an offshore hedge fund? How does this all work? Tax ramifications. I just like, let's just go wild. Like, let's just go down the rabbit hole. And I mean, let's get, I guess, uh, a lexicon first. Like, what does that mean? What is a hedge fund? What is the difference between a hedge fund and um opposed to a normal investment fund or something that someone might be a little bit more familiar with? Yeah, well, well okay, let's dissect like hedge, you know, private equity and hedge fund, right? <clears throat> so fund, generally an aggregation of, of uh, different people's or companies' monies, right? They come together, they form a fund, and now you're as a group, you have more buying power, economy of scale. Uh, private equity versus, well, there's you know, uh, public equities, which is like stocks on the publicly traded market. Uh, one of the reasons that I don't favor that, again, is regulation. Uh, private equity is the same thing, except for the fact that it's not on the open market. 
So it's uh, more challenging to acquire. You don't just go on E-Trade, call a broker, say, hey, I'll take you know a share of Apple, a share of Tesla, et cetera. Um, a positive part that I really happen to appreciate, because you're buying, you're still buying stock in a company, right? You're buying the equity of the company. That's the definition of the equity of the company. Equities is simply you're you're buying a percentage of the company. Maybe it's all of it, maybe it's a small percentage, somewhere in between. One of the things that I happen to love, I trade on information. And I get to carry information with me, just like my education right, that we talk about, that you get the licensing, the licensing actually restricts some of what you now know uh, as far as your actions go. Well, public equities, stock market, um, those instruments, financial instruments, stocks, are th there are high levels of restriction. There's something called, for instance, insider trading. Insider trading is something where, uh, you know, if I sit on a board of directors of a company or I'm an officer within a company, which I am in money, and if I, you know, having a controlling interest, if it's a publicly traded company, there are certain things I'm allowed to do and not allowed to do. Uh, restricted stock is what we call that I would have in that case. In the case of private equity, it is free society go to town because it's not out there's not somebody who's going to be manipulated there's a bunch of random shareholders who bought it based on um some sort of buzz but i knew that it was about to crash or vice versa um i i understand the strategies of what's going on behind the scenes and i get to negotiate one-on-one -on -one, one on many these deals with other buyers and sellers i get to buy negotiate my buy price i get to negotiate my sell price um, to dis, you know, equities versus a uh, hedge fund. Hedge funds are things that are um, so uh, on the on the uh, PE side, private equity side. They're generally long term positions, right? We're looking. We're going to come in. We're going to acquire some a company or a piece of a company, and our goal is it's going to go up. And we have an exit strategy before I even enter a position uh, myself or my associates. We have an uh, exit A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. And is this a value add usually? Like, are you going in and adding your expertise to help drive the company, maybe from a marketing, your sales, or, you know, opening up your Rolodex and helping from that way? Or are you usually quite silent and in the background? Uh, I don't, you know, who I am and such, I don't have much interest in just being money. What you're talking about as far as opening the Rolodex and such, um, in the industry, we call it smart money. Uh I'm a pretty smart guy. It doesn't necessarily make me smarter because they call it smart money. But the being smart money is something that a lot of times I might actually be vied over. I or we um, to be the buyer. They're like, well, wait, we actually will turn out turn down other money. Uh, there's a wonderful company right now. Can't speak of it at the moment. Uh, in probably you know in the near future, I can. Um, can you release the country? Uh, presently U.S. based, but that's uh, not necessarily going to be the case forever. Okay, subject to change. Subject to change, but it is a company in fintech that will be. It's going to become a household name um, very soon. Yeah. Uh, app-based and some algorithms that are kind of amazing um, as far as what what the technical, just trading on technicals. And those are public securities that get traded within it. But now, so to, to try to keep it clean, right? 
So yes, this app or the software, right? Software as a service, uh, fintech, what have you. My position is that we're actually looking to acquire the company. We've been in courtship for a while and you know they just turned down a bunch of money saying, we actually want you because we don't just want money, but we want smart money. We want you to be able to help us. So coming in, sitting on the board, being able to pop into meetings, you know, specific strategic meetings and helping them in the U.S., out of the U.S., what have you. Um, that's something that you know, being the smart money, it's a lot more fun for me. If it was a set in, forget it, you know, run papel and that kind of thing. Sure. I just, you know, open a brokerage account, go buy a bunch of stocks, set it and forget it or an ETF or something of that nature, you know, some sort of other fund, but <clears throat> it's not nearly as much fun. And the return isn't there. That was going to be my next question. So obviously, <laughs> you know, like you would make the assumption that, okay, it's a value add. This is smart money. You're bringing in your expertise. I mean, that's a lot more work. You got to be compensated for that additional work. You know, if we look at a normal stock market, what's an average return? Seven to 11%, something like this. What, what kind of numbers would you be looking to uh, generate when going into private equity? Um, in our PE positions, I'm looking for mid double digits of returns. So percentages. So, you know, target in the, in the neighborhood of 50% uh, year over year. Um, some of our positions that we're specifically looking for are, that's average, by the way, that includes our lemons, right? Oops, we missed it. Um, truth be told, it, it seems that we're actually, our forecasts are better and better. Unicorns are great, right? You, you invest, I don't know, a hundred thousand, a million dollars, it turns into a billion. That's great. Rare. Uh, they happen. And yeah, they're yeah. rare. They're, they hit the headlines. Do, do you think the next uh, Facebook or Twitter or Uber is around the corner? Or do you think that a lot of those days are gone? I, I, um, if you keep looking, so, you know, past performance is not indicative of future results, right? We all, we've heard that one before. So if we look at, you know, Facebook or Uber or Twitter, sure. But how do you actually take that and apply it forth? And meaning if that market's already been saturated, if that's, how do you take that technology uh, and that mindset and that scalability. And how do you say, okay, so Facebook, social media, cool. How do we apply it over to a different industry that's a true laggard? Maybe it's, it's heavy in liabilities and brick and mortar. And how do we, and, and it's not an all or nothing. I don't believe in an all or nothing. Some of our strategies, we go in, we take a brick and mortar company, we acquire it in a very aggressive manner. Maybe it's out of administration or bankruptcy. Um, turn it around and we take a totally different philosophy and go with it. We take a brick and mortar company, turn it into a hundred percent e-com e-commerce company. Right. Um, there, I don't like to be the first, well, we'll back up a second just to, you know, the hedge versus PE and then, and then I'll step into another, uh, example, so to speak. Okay. We're going to take like a quick 10 second break. So what I want everyone to do right now is if you are a fan of this show, I want you to share it with one friend. That's it. That's all I need you to do. I need you to pause the episode right now. Go out there. Go on Facebook. Go on Twitter. Go on your email. And I want you to share this episode or maybe your favorite episode with a really good friend of yours. Because it's no secret that the world, we're going through 
some pretty tough times right now. And what I want to do is try to be a voice of solution, a voice of reason that is out there to be able to help people. And I honestly believe that moving overseas and having a bit of adventure and having a bit of passion back in your life and moving to a safe, peaceful country is a real opportunity for people. So please, 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 if you guys can just do one thing for me today, I want you to share this episode or your favorite episode with a friend right now. I really appreciate it. We actually grow the more the episodes are shared. We need to get these things out here because what I think is that we're all building a really strong community together. So hopefully you will take this, you'll share it with your friends, and get a lot of value from it. Thank you so much. Okay, let's jump back into the interview. So then hedge funds, that's where we're moving. There's a lot more transactions. It's not something, private equity, we're talking months and years to enter a position. We're dealing with uh, the existing board of directors, the old guard, who's there, what are their goals? So we get to negotiate, what do you really want? What is, you know, is it a, a generational succession? Oh yeah, but uh, the second or third generation, they wanna stay on. You know, even though the, the um, initial generations, they're looking to exit, they're looking to do some cash out, a, a liquidity event, so to speak. So we bring in some liquidity. A lot of times we'll even partner with them because, you know, we might say, hey, uh, we don't need to be greedy, but, um, you know, the first generation or two, they'd like their exit. And then, you know, generation number two or three, what have you, um, they might be saying, you know what, I'd love to, I'd love to do what my grandfather started. I'd love to build that further. And now we can bring in additional capital and additional, you know, the newer perspective, new generation. And we have the ability to actually, you know, start strategically create that hockey stick. So sometimes folks ask me like, like oh, you, you must have a crystal ball. I have, I'm a numbers geek. I have numbers modeling. That's my crystal ball. You know, I can see where is it going to go within a, a reasonable uh, margin of error. And, um, and sometimes it hits, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. There are some positions that we have right now, some companies that, that we've acquired that uh, you, you can't, you couldn't plan certain things that happen on earth, like a global pandemic. Um, For sure. Eh, well, I guess it depends on what kind of conspiracy theorist you are. Cause <laughs> <laughs> some, some people have said, we'll leave that one alone yeah, for this. I know episode. it's been coming. Yep. It's been coming. I told you. <laughs> yeah. You've been telling me for 15 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, but sometimes, yeah. Being better lucky than good in the, on the hedge fund side, right? Private equity. It's generally, you're going to buy it. And we're going to be there. It's rarely that it's only months. It's usually years. And we even have, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're in there. We're in it to win it. And a lot of times we'll even have different times of exit. So liquidity events where we might acquire a company at, at here, we grow it to there. And then we take some of that capital out. We sell off some stock. Maybe we do an IPO, uh, like an IPO, initial public offering. That would be in a, a liquidity event. Um, an exit strategy, but we might hang on to some of it and really write it up, uh, which might be the unicorn space. So we, um, so even though the word hedge, <laughs> uh, we're hedging where we're coming in and we're, um, you know, taking some of the chips off the table, uh, the proverbial, uh, casino, and then we ride the rest of the wave up. 
and then we might have some things where we uh, we call it dollar cost averaging. We might be pulling. There might be other exit strategy, uh, exit positions where we're having these liquidity events along the way, and we just keep pulling a little cash and a little cash and a little cash off the table, and uh, until we write it way way up. Um, the hedge fund side, or, or you know, that behavior, they're short positions. It's very active. Uh, currency arbitrage. Uh, you know, real, we, as a matter of fact, double closes on real estate where we might buy and sell a hotel simultaneously. Um, because we came in, we negotiated a deal. We had this, we already had a buyer. We are obviously already bought, had the seller. We're not brokering the deal. We're taking an equity position in that. And sometimes on the back end, we might come in, negotiate a deal where we acquire something like that, a, a plant, uh, a hotel, we come in and acquire it, um, and it's like that, and we sell half of it. We made money on the front end, but we are also believing that it's a good investment in the long run. So on the back end, it's over here on on this side where we might stay in it, and then we transfer. We'll actually transfer that asset from the hedge to the private equity, and uh, the hedge is is something where we can get some decent returns, um, really decent returns above market average for certain. Um, it's a lot more active. It's a lot more volatile. And a lot of times we'll trade on volatility. So then talk to me a little bit about why the international space? Because everything you've just described actually can all be done within the, inside the United States. Why are you going overseas? Why are you flying around the world and visiting these different countries and, you know, making that, that little switch? Yeah. Um, which is more rare, I would say. People don't normally see this uh, taking U.S. money and moving it overseas or taking um, these types of positions. Like you mentioned earlier, a lot of people aren't comfortable with this type of stuff. Uh, a lot of times they're not comfortable. But again, it goes back to, you know, are we are we lemmings? Are we propagandized? Are we thinking for ourselves? You know, if you want to if you want to think for yourself, you're probably going to have to educate yourself a little bit. Um, or deal with people who are, who are quite educated in that space, not necessarily just read a book or an article or, um, you know, what have you. Why? The returns, we can quadruple returns, is, is not an uncommon number in comparison. So if we did the same type of transactions in Canada, U.S., um, there's going to be a, a mitigation of what kind of return we can have. We have a lot of competition, frankly for coming into these positions. There's a lot of money already there. There's a lot of liquidity in these markets in North America, let's say. So 360 million people in this space, um, and they're pretty affluent as far as the world goes. Um, you know, quite fortunate individuals overall on average. And um, the ability to flip somewhere else to where we can instant, well, here, how about this one? Um, uh, I've got a resort in Costa Rica, a uh, beautiful luxury resort, close to the Panamanian border, up in the jungle, uh, wonderful place. It's one of my holdings. Um, a, you know, in the U.S., for instance, funds right now, I don't think you could find a mortgage as high as 5% presently. But let's just use round numbers and call it a 5%. The, the cost of funds is 5%, let's say that. A conforming mortgage on a house that's already built in Costa Rica is 20%. So right there, you've got that 15 point spread right there. 
and I'm not condoning that this is exactly what you ought to do. I mean, there's more that goes into it. But if we use this simple addition subtraction, well, there's the cost of operating business, sure, but that's a real simple. You just beat the market. The 93-year average is you know 11% of the New York Stock Exchange. You just beat it by, I don't know, 40%. So talk to me, I guess, a little bit about some of the other jurisdictions that you work in or that you like or that you think are exciting and people might want to keep their eyes on. Um, do you work mostly in Latin America? Do you work in Europe? What kind of areas do you like? So we've got uh, offices in London and San Francisco. Um, not an actual office, but you know, a, a pretty sensible presence around Latin America. Uh, politics. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat apolitical, um, but I watch the information. I watch what's going on. And it's interesting how there is manipulation of, uh, of what can happen in a, in a smaller country, an emerging market, and uh, who happens to be the president, the prime minister. Um, what direction are they going? And frankly, a lot of times you can actually see uh, in smaller countries, there, there's it's not always, uh, there's a level of corruption that's just accepted. And if you happen to be seeing the positions they have or knowing the information that they know, well, they're going to generally do things that favor themselves. So why not ride on their coattails? Why not go along for the ride? And it's just, it's opportunistic. Um, it's not about right or wrong. There's no morality in it. Uh, at least yeah. I, I don't It's a have, reality. It's a reality. I'm a pragmatist. It's just, it just is what it is. And you can either, you can not choose not to participate. You can choose to be a victim, which saying, oh, I don't have a choice. I'm participating. Or why not, you know, step up and be a conscious adult and make some real choices. And on the back end, you're probably going to end up better than on the front end. Okay. So, uh, you like a lot of the countries in Latin America. Is there sp specific ones that you like, specific ones you'd be like, I will never invest there. It's too dodgy or it's too uh, wild west. Um, you know, what about country specific? What do you like? You, what don't you know, like? that's the interesting thing is, uh, uh, you know, let's take Venezuela at present, right? Present day Venezuela. And you could say that, oh, it's too wild west. We've been watching Venezuela for about two, two and a half years. And there've been multiple times that we've looked at like, oh, 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 the timing's coming. Nope, not yet. Oh, 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 the time's coming, not yet. Presently, we have no holdings there. Um, but at some point the bubble will burst. And, you know, specifically, I think luxury properties are actually gonna be something uh, in Venezuela when it, the time comes to turn. Now, we don't know when they'll, we don't know when that's going to be. The Castros have been in Cuba for decades. <laughs> exactly. How long will Maduro hold on to power for? Is he going to be removed? What are the changes going to be? I mean, I looked out at property in Margarita Island in Venezuela at beachfront, you know, scooping up acres and acres of beachfront. You know, obviously things are slightly easier for me. I'm not American, so I don't have any of the same types of embargo issues uh, that other people did. But uh, yeah, Venezuela is a interesting country <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, but I am bullish. You know, there's so many countries I'm bullish on. I mean, Colombia happens to be, I think it's highly underappreciated. Uh, I know there's a bit of an expat movement right now, digital nomads, et cetera, moving there. Um, so yeah, the prices are coming up, but uh, they're, I mean, you know, there are so many beautiful people on earth, the cultures, the welcoming, the hospitality. And, um, you know, Pablo Escobar couldn't have been all wrong. Right. So it's, and it's not saying that it's, uh, that that's back. We're back in the days of when <laughs> Pablo Escobar was on the, uh, the Forbes list. He was like in the top 10 richest men on earth <laughs> back in the eighties. Um, but it's, there's so many places on earth and this, this, this arbitrage, this movement of, and I know it real sounds really simple, buy low, sell high. Sure. It's real simple, but how do you not commit to that? How do you, how do you step in? How do you get a commitment from the seller today so that you have a time frame going forward, what we call options, for instance, and so how do you get an option on something, a contract where you say, hey, I'll pay you a little stipend today. I want to be able to control your property, but I don't, I don't want to buy it today. And I might buy it tomorrow and I might not, but let's fix the price today on how I might buy it. And I'm using property because it's, it's simple. And a lot know, of people understand it. Yeah. Land. Yeah. Land, a house, a dwelling, a building. Pretty simple. It's, it's tactile, right? But um, there are things, you know, we can do intellectual property, digital IP, right? Digital intellectual property. I mean, that's something that's interesting that, well, where is that actually held? Who owns it? Uh, there's lots of companies. Heck, I don't know how many of, if you look at the public markets and the big, uh, the big funds are actually based in the Cayman Islands that are, you know, U.S. US operated, but based in the Caymans. Um, it's not the, it's not the same as it was in the eighties when it was a tax evasion land and such. There's more regulation, uh, banking is respectable. It's a very different place compared to the reputations of a lot of these places and getting ahead of the, by the time it builds a new reputation, you're, you're either caboose of the train, the opportunity's gone. If you're there and, um, you know, in my analogy, a lot of times I don't want to be number one. I don't want to be the guy who's blazing the trail. If there's 10 of us going through the jungle, right? The engine of the train. I want to be the second, third car back. Um, if there's, you know, 10 of us going through the jungle, I don't want to be the guy who for, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years is, is whacking through the jungle with his machete and, you know, potentially two machetes. And they're doing something like, uh, you know, he's going through a vine. Great. And the next time he hits a branch, he thought it was a vine. He hits it. It goes out, it comes back, whacks him in the forehead. I want to be, <laughs> right? Yeah. I want to be the second or third guy, and I want to see what's happening, like, in real time. And, and I don't want to be number five through ten either, because then you're going through it and experiencing it all again. You don't know the difference between a vine and a branch, and you're tripping over a log. So I don't want to be way back there as a laggard. I'd like to be on the cutting edge, but not the, you know, yeah, the leading but let edge. let someone else bleeding. sacrifice themselves. Uh, you know, yeah. Prove the market and be on the bleeding edge of technology, not the leading edge. So, yeah, that's uh, well, that makes sense. So, 
okay, so first of all, we discussed what are the the differences between private equity and offshore, or sorry, uh, hedge fund, and then some of the reasons that people would want to do this, or I guess the reasons that you do this outside of the North American jurisdiction, why you might look at somewhere like Latin America or somewhere else in the world. And, you know, the the profits that can be had for this and some of the different types of instruments that we you could use. For example, the hotels, the property, the agricultural land, the real estate, but also the intellectual property and the you know, up and coming tech companies. Help me understand next the legality of this. Because, you know, a lot of people think that you know, moving money outside of the United States is not legal. And maybe people are listening to this going, wow, that sounds really cool. You know, the IRS is going to start knocking down your door or Securities Exchange Commission is going to, you know, break in your door and ask what you're doing, you know. Talk to me about the legality about all of this. Yeah, so, well, I mean, the, the, you're a great resource for this. Uh, there's lots of uh, attorneys out there, accountants, et cetera. You know, the legality of it is if you're trying, so tech, let's talk about tax avoidance versus evasion because, you know, the IRS, for instance, or CRA, right? Revenue Canada. So what they're looking for is what they have legislated as their due piece. They want to share in your winnings. So as long as you're not hiding it, deceiving, it's perfectly fine. You can move money from Canada outside of, so I don't know, let's call it, say to Panama, invest, uh, and then back to the US. That's all perfectly legal. There's nothing illegal about that. If you start trying to not pay tax, do taxes based on the legislature, then I think a, you know, a great legal team, an accountancy team, absolutely, uh, that's a must. Because uh, why do it all on your own? I mean, I read textbooks. We have jurisdictional specialists all over the globe. We operate in, I don't know, I think it's just over 100 jurisdictions right now. And, but we do it in a legal manner. Uh, you follow the local laws and you follow the laws that are, whether it's uh, you know, CRA or IRS or you know, states in the US for that matter, mm-hmm. they California. potentially want their peace. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> California is a, a big one mm-hmm. that has hooks. Recently dealt with somebody who, uh, uh, a client where we found out that California has a 20 year statute of limitations. Wow, in taxes, twenty years. That's yeah. pretty bad. Uh, that's like a lifetime ago for most people, even during the same lifetime, right? Um, but why why do it illegally? Are taxes part of our choices of what jurisdictions we we choose to play in, invest in, et cetera? And when we move funds back, we repatriate or um, to pay those taxes? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the U.S., a real simple one. Uh, and this is, you know, the, hedge, the epitome of hedge fund versus private equity fund, right? Or hedge versus private equity. Uh, private equity is generally long term. It's rarely under a year. It's usually, you know, it's months, years. Mm-hmm. Um, so long term capital gains tax. Exactly. In the U.S., it's long term capital gains. So it drops down by 25%. Yep, exactly. So the tax, so if you're at 11 and a half months, um, which is the, the guideline one year or less, you know, over a year or less than a year. So if you're at 11 and a half months, you have to get, I think we want to sell this. This is about the right time. Well, if you wait a couple of weeks, your taxes are probably going to drop. 
uh, because it, now it's realized as long-term capital gains. Whereas the short-term, uh, I mean, first off, make the investment decision based on the investment decision. Then take that added, these layers of additional information and say, okay, how are we going to do so? How is it going to be treated? When do we realize that profit? And that's, you know, but it's an add-on. If you're making all your decisions based on tax, then your, your wins and your, your upside is probably not big enough, frankly. But you don't have that margin in between to account for that. Right. The VIG, the spread, the margin. Yeah. That difference in the two, as long as you've got plenty of space in there, that's the primary decision. And then there's all these ancillary influencers on the decision, you know, 11 and a half months versus 12 months in a week. Right. There's a big shift, right? As a matter of fact, it could be two days, you know, one day, two days. And all of a sudden there's a big shift. Usually it doesn't line up exactly like that. Uh, but if you think that there's going to be a big sell off, uh, you know, there's all of a sudden my uh, million dollar company is going to, is going to turn into a half million dollar company tomorrow. And you're at 11 and a half months. Um, take the money and you have an opportunity to get out at a million, take the money, pay the taxes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Or work on the tax strategy as well, but that's not the primary decision. Mm-hmm. One in the hand is worth two in the bush. That's what they say. Depends on the bush you're shaking. <laughs> so, okay. So that all makes perfect sense to me. Talk to me then about the risk, because you mentioned earlier in our conversation about the regulation. Now, a lot of people, they think that investing in the U.S. is super, super safe because they have all of this regulation. Um, first of all, is that true? And second of all, is operating in a company that is not super regulated unsafe? Um, yeah, I guess I'll just you know answer as yes and no, both, right? Um, so the intention of the regulations is for the citizens, um, you know, whether it's Canadians, there's laws written all over the world, all over the world, as far as, you know, whether it's a UK citizen, US, Canadian, et cetera, et cetera. Those, you know, those uh, regulatory authorities are there to protect. The laws are created because, right, it's, it's one guy does something and guess what? Oh, we should have had a law that would have protected people. And then we just keep adding on and adding on and adding on. Next thing you know, you have like 69,000 laws with no sunset and, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And no human right? being can possibly know every single law and regulation that's out there. Including the politicians who actually put it into law. <laughs> they didn't actually read it, right? They got the abridged version. Um, usually, yeah, usually that's the case. Can't speak about everybody all the time, but... So, you know, here, let's use this, you know, case in point. Um, let's see. So the U.S. has laws and uh, foul play could never occur in somebody's, you know, your bank accounts, your brokerage accounts, et cetera. Um, okay, Bernie Madoff. Yeah. How did that happen? Wasn't he like the chairman of like uh, different uh, regulatory things? He sat on the board and I mean... Largest Ponzi scheme in U.S. history. I, I don't know all the ins and outs. I've seen a couple of uh, you know uh, films that were redos and what have you. Of course, it's a you know Madoff is a, um, a household name in in the world of finance, office name, right? <clears throat> but that was illegal. Um, but he still 
did it to the tune of, I don't know, north of $50 billion. I mean, just decades, decades it went on. And, and I just find it amazing. I go, ah, that's incredible. Uh, I wouldn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And I don't know how such a machine could have been done and kept up. And I can only imagine the guy's stress level over the, <laughs> the, the years and decades. <laughs> like, yeah. <sighs> Right. I mean, just not a good plan. So, okay. So answering, Hey, there's regulations. Look, it's safe, right? America, it's safe. There's laws against it. Yeah. Well, people break laws, you know, and there's, there's consequences on the back end. Okay. So then let's go to somewhere that's more unregulated and say, okay, so, oh, but there's no law against that. It's, you know, unregulated, what have you. Um, I look at it as, you know, go, don't go step in, in ignorance, Hire professionals who know. Um, is it going to cost more on the front end, whether it's education or hiring professionals in the local jurisdictions? Um, you know, at times, so there's strategies that we'll use. There's the concept of where you, uh, you want to check your work, right? There's, there's compliance and what have you. So we're, we look at somebody running a deal. Sometimes we'll do double work. Sometimes we will take two of our analysts to analyze the same exact deal, mm-hmm. unbeknownst to one another. Okay. Hey, you, go run an analyst on this. Okay, now go do it. Hey, you, go run an analysis on this. Go do it. And they come back with their answers, totally independent, not knowing what another is doing in their own silos, so to speak. And that's where, you know, that's a strategy at times to deploy. Is that more expensive? Now you just paid for somebody to do, it's not efficient, uh, but it's effect. it can be very effective. Now we just doubled our expense because we just paid, two analysts to run through it or two teams to run through it. But, you know, it's just like going to a doctor that, you know, <laughs> they say if, if you always get a second opinion and that's what we're doing in that case. So let's be responsible adults. Let's be conscious and knowledgeable about what's going on. And then we make big kid decisions about uh, risk versus reward. Oh, that's unregulated. Okay. Well, how stable are the banks? What currency are we banking it? Is it a local currency that has a higher level of volatility? Is it a British pound? Where's the British pound headed? Uh, is it a US dollar? Um, there's, so there's, there's multiple pieces that go into that. But the beautiful thing is if there's an upside, when we get done with our due diligence, we probably know more than anybody about that deal. And now, <clears throat> would you rather be safe and get 11%, uh, which is not guaranteed and could have loss and such, or, or what we're looking at, because sure, there's increase. I don't know if it's increased risks. It's distinct risk. I don't know that it's necessarily, the way we set things up, it's not necessarily- Just way to mitigate it, I suppose. Yeah, we're, we're mitigating. And then diversification is a big piece of it as well. You know, the old adage of don't put all your eggs in one basket, pretty simple. Um, but if we diversify in multiple positions um, and we do proper due diligence, even if one does go sideways on us, well, we had 99 that didn't. Yeah. And then with the returns, if you're making 20, 30, 40, 50%, I mean, that can cover a lot of mistakes as well. You get a couple of those winners. It's different than, you know, a couple of 7%, 10%, 11% winners uh, on what they're going to be able to cover. Yep. And a lot of times it's not, it doesn't go from all to nothing. That's, yep. that's a misnomer. A lot of times folks think like, oh, that's, here's the win. Oh, my capital went in. 
whatever. It's it's a million went in, and then they think, oh, it goes from a million to zero. Well, no, it went from a million to we exited eight fifty, three hundred, whatever it was. You know, hopefully we're mitigating the risk, and maybe we're we're exiting in multiple uh, tranches, so to speak. We're pulling out in different little pieces, so that we're. Uh, it is a matter of mitigating the risk. Um, by diversifying, we can actually take the risk out. We can be disciplined investors, you know, stepping up and that diligence on the front end of analyzation of hiring, you know, you hire one law firm that's, um, you or we, or what have you, we have some of the best (laughs) attorneys on the planet and, um, hiring one. Sometimes we'll go get a second opinion. Uh, is it expensive? Yeah, absolutely. But we want to make sure on the back end. You know, that when we're coming in the front end that we're doing it, we're doing it properly. And do you always work with local representation? Do you have a, a U.S.-based law firm that you work with every single time? Is it a combination of the both? Of both? It's a combination. It depends on the deal. It depends on the size of the deal. It depends on where uh, the law firms have a presence uh, because we do utilize different law firms in different jurisdictions. Sometimes they're local. Sometimes it's a satellite office in that jurisdiction, but they're based elsewhere um and sometimes we'll use both uh because we we might want the interpretation hey what's going to happen when we repatriate these funds so potentially it's a u.s-based law firm that has a london office and then we might go hire a london solicitor uh, a firm there barristers a lot of times are who we deal with the folks who actually make the laws and um that way we've got different perspectives coming in and it's not just myopically like oh look it looks so good yeah but what didn't we know right let's open the kimono and let's look all the way around let's lift it up let's look inside <laughs> <laughs> let's give them some sake and uh hopefully they'll start spilling some beans that they you know wasn't exactly in the debrief yeah well i think that's an interesting point because people often when they're investing in the stock market I mean, okay, you can look at balance sheets if this is a publicly traded company. You can look at a lot of the financials. But good luck ever meeting the CEO. Good luck looking like meeting any of the, the C-level executives that run the company. Now, with these smaller deals, I would imagine you're going to meet most of them or all of them before you're ever putting money on these types of things. Um, being able to shake someone's hand, look them in the eye, spend some time with them, go out for dinner, go out for drinks, have this spaced over a month. I mean, there you, you talk about life, left brain, right brain, and how we work as human beings. There is still so many things that we don't understand about human beings um, and how we judge and how that intu- intuition works. So I think that doing this, you know, it does add something else to the puzzle that you will never get when you're just picking up some Apple stock or, you know, something else on the NASDAQ or the US, US exchanges. Yeah, you know, you're so right, because um, a lot of times we'll walk away from a deal. Uh, and frequently it's early on. Is it we'll walk away from a deal uh, and yeah, usually on the earlier side uh, because it's like, yeah, something's not right. Yeah. Even if you can't put your finger right. on it. Yeah. All the numbers are right. Uh, everything's right. Yeah, but I don't trust them. Yeah, something's not, it's not screaming like ding, ding, ding. That's, that's here. Um, and, and, you know, as far as returns and such, you know, what we're looking for. I mean, a unicorn 
generally we're looking for 800 and north of a thousand percent return uh, over a few years, uh, but annualized. And, you know, that's what we constitute as a, as a unicorn. Different folks have different definitions, so to speak. But, you know, the dot-com Silicon Valley is, is, oh, it's a unicorn, unicorn. Yeah, but how many businesses went out of business before that? How many, you know, an overnight success is only 15 years in the making, right? You didn't see what happened <laughs> before, you know, where were you when it was all the blood, sweat, and tears and nobody believed in them and so on. And a lot of times just our capital and we don't have to come in all at once. We can come in in, in, uh, in bits, in what we call tranches, right? And we can come in in these, okay, we're going to invest this much. And then when this milestone is met within this time frame, okay, we're ready for the next. And when we're capitalizing, a lot of times you know, in the startup venture capital space, you know, those guys are looking for some sort of a, a, a home run in that sense where they want to build a company and such. A lot of times we're coming in and these are pretty mature companies. They're just, they just haven't hit that cadence yet. Um, I mean, one of our recent acquisitions is, it's a, it's a nine-year-old company. Uh, closest competitor is 17 years. And, um, but as nine years, it's not overnight, but there's been a lot of learning. There's been a lot of things happening there that it's not startup by definition, because it's nine years in business. But if you look at the, where they are in their phase of growth, it's a lot like a startup. You know, everything about it says startup, except for the fact that, oh, they've been in business almost a decade, but they just had to get, they had to get, you know, take some in the chops and learn and make some mistakes and but they keep getting back up and that tenacity that character what do you do in different markets you know in investing a lot of times different strategies work in different markets uh different markets being a bull market a bear market etc up going up going down what about different jurisdictions those become different markets so what you used over here in one jurisdiction is a strategy that you might be able to profit from really well you take that exact strategy and just cross a border and it might be a lemon. So do you, do you have more arrows in your quiver than just that same one? Are you a one trick pony or do you have more tricks that you can do? Can you actually put on a show once somebody's seen your show, you know, are they actually going to come back to see the sequel and the next and the next and what else can you do? Or if they, it's one and done, they've already seen it. Well, I see it all the time. People email me, they write in, and they're like, oh, what's the best offshore jurisdiction? What's the best country to get a bank account in? What's the best country to invest in? It's like, it doesn't work like that. I mean, there are strengths, there are weaknesses for every jurisdiction, and without you know, knowing a lot about your business and the situation and the people that are involved, the team. I mean, it's impossible to say. And anybody who out goes out there and tells you this is the best, I mean, they're doing you a disservice because that's a cookie cutter. And anytime you're looking at these types of things, I mean, you don't want cookie cutter solutions. You want tailor made. This should be an off the, this should not be an off the rack suit. This should be a tailor coming to your house and preparing something just for you based on what you need. Yeah. Spot on. Yeah. That's so right. Because anybody who's willing to do that and just go like, Oh, boom, this is, this is the place. Well, is that the place for your business or for banking? Mm -hmm. Is or that the residency. place to, is that where your you're residency? living? Yeah. yeah. 
exactly where are you living where are you playing how you know are you banking i mean at times we won't we won't actually bank in the jurisdiction a lot of these you know a lot of these countries jurisdictions what have you they are um they're cash economies and a lot of times we might not so you know that's kind of interesting so there's where's the company based you know we're, we're let's say we're going to go acquire a company okay so the company's based here or they have assets there let's say it's, it has to do with land let's say it's a factory Okay. Oh, well, yeah, let's run fact- through a whole, let's paint an entire picture. Yeah. So, okay, let's start with, um, what, what, what's a good one? Do you want to do physical? Do you want to do uh, digital intellectual property kind of stuff? Well, IP, let's skip the digital because it's not as visual. Okay. I think, so let's say. Because it's uh, so intangible. Yeah. A hotel. Yep. So there's a hotel in a jurisdiction. That jurisdiction, um, is where the hotel physically is, but the company that actually owns it is in a different jurisdiction. But where, because for whatever reason, it was formed there. So the parent company, and it only owns this one hotel, let's say, right? So they have the physical property. It's an operating business, um, but in, in a cash economy, let's say. Um, and the, but the So give me an example. Company, if, if we're going to do this, yeah. if we're gonna do this uh, let's yeah. go down the rabbit hole. You, all my listeners know that I like to go down the rabbit Here hole. Here we go. All right. So a cash economy, give me a good example of a cash economy country that you've worked in in the past that you think is good that, you know, might fit our scenario here. Okay. Let's do, um, let's do Colombia. So it uh, doesn't necessarily apply for some of the bank. You see, this is, this is exactly where the bespoke suit comes in because there's so many if-then scenarios and when you change one little piece, the whole equation changes, the whole puzzle, right? So, okay, let's pick some wealth. Let's pick like Argentina or something like that. Where, sure. Like Argentina. I mean, that makes you know, sense. Their banking is probably. <laughs> I, I'm not going to get to that quoted saying anything here, but yeah. Right. Uh, well, we'll just say there's a lot of mattress money in that country. Exactly. So, All right. So, um, so there is an existing business. It is a yeah. hotel. It's in Great. Argentina. It's beautiful. Walk me through the process here. Absolutely. So, you know, because of the taxes on that side, based on uh, credit cards being utilized, potentially they're not even, they're going to really want to dissuade from even utilizing credit cards uh, because it gets nicked by the government on the way through, right? So right there, it's a challenge and you've got a pretty big, uh, pretty big piece that the government just takes right off the tr- through the banks, credit card transactions. So you've got this, but it's in a beautiful spot, right? Beautiful location, great staff. It's up and going. It's well established. You know, when people come through, it's known. It's a it's a fixture. Um, the parent company might be uh, what other jurisdiction here? Where would the parent company be? Say the parent company is in uh, Nevis. Um, it was for asset protection reasons, but the actual parent company, so they own the asset of the hotel that operates um, in in uh, Argentina, but the actual parent company is in Nevis. Well, ne- oh, we could even get really wacky and say Seychelles. Yeah, we could really just start sp- bopping about the globe. Let's say Seychelles. <laughs> okay, so the parent I company got, is actually- I like Seychelles. I got married in Seychelles. Yeah, a beautiful place. I mean, Gorgeous spot. A beautiful place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Under Underappreciated by the Western Hemisphere. True, very true. I believe. Um, so let's say the parent company is actually in Seychelles. Uh, but if you actually want to utilize the funds, the banking is not necessarily the most stable in Seychelles. So that company 
that has its operating unit in the hotel in Argentina, that the company is actually in Seychelles, they might bank in uh, Cyprus. Um, Isle of Man. Well, we could come all the way back over to Caymans. Uh, but somewhere that that's, there's more stability in banking. So right now we've got a company that just to conduct business, we're already in three jurisdictions. That doesn't that doesn't even touch on, well, who actually owns the company? Um, what jurisdictions are they in? Do they owe uh, taxes? You know, are they a resident of a jurisdiction where they potentially own taxes? Does it even flush through? So it, in a real easy manner, I mean, very quickly, it can be a slippery slope. Next thing you know, we're into uh, four or five different jurisdictions. And it's because you're picking the best for what it is. The reason that you went and acquired that hotel was because it's a wonderful place. Maybe you fell in love there. Maybe you got married there. And you just say, "This I'm in love with this place. I want to buy this. I want my kids to have it. Oh, by the way, it happens to be owned by nobody locally in the country owns it. Uh, they do as much of the, as they can as far as outside the country. Uh, asset protection, Seychelles. Uh, oh, but banking, Caymans. Uh, oh, but by the way, Canadian resident. Uh, which also happens to be a U.S. citizen. <laughs> so, <laughs> just, to throw, just to throw some gas on the fire just, and make it a little hey, bit more comfortable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just pour gas on that fire, throw fat cut in there, and next thing you know. So, you know, talk about being bespoke, right? In an acquisition, we look at that and say, well, where should the parent company be? Who are the investors? You know, and potentially, there's even a, a, a holding company like us, right? peak performance global equity. And potentially what we end up doing is we come in and we buy that Seychelles company. It doesn't mean that we're going to say, oh no, Seychelles, you know, bad, 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 or bad reputation. Uh, and it just depends on who you're asking as far as the reputation. And we might say, that's perfectly fine, but we're just going to be above board. And, you know, there's a huge distinction on that side is paying what's due. So paying the man, right? I'm not necessarily a zero tax guy. Uh, what I don't believe in, uh, this is just my own personal philosophy, is overpaying taxes. And most people on earth in uh, industrialized nations overpay. And it, that's just my judgment. That's my observation. It's what I've seen. And it's frankly, it's mostly out of two things. One, ignorance, two, fear in that order. Because they're ignorant, they're fearful. Because they're fearful, they quite often will overpay because there's probably a professional who said, well, let's keep your risk of audit down. Well, who's paying for that? <laughs> it's, it's not your accountant who's doing your tax preparing who's paying for that. Mm -hmm. It's you. Yeah. So. Well, I see it all the time. People overpay and then think that getting a return from the government, from the IRS, is like this great thing. And I'm like, you have just given an interest-free loan to the government for however many months, I mean, with with nothing. Like, there's, you should be paying taxes at the very last part. You should be pushing out paying your taxes legally for as long as possible. This is not the thing that you want to get ahead on. Yes, you need to be organized. Yes, you have to have your bookkeeping in order. Yes, 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 yes. But I mean, don't give the government interest-free loans um, out of nowhere. Like, that's not part of the law. That is not your requirement. They don't expect that. Um, yeah, they I'll like leave it, it at that. <laughs> yeah, they might like it, but yeah. uh, that, that's they won't actually not part you of the from it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 
No, but that's exactly is it. If we, if we don't be, um, you know, apathetic, not to be, uh, inflammatory, but let's be adults. Let's, let's, uh, personal responsibility, personal responsibility. Let's be responsible for thyself. Let's be responsible for thy family. Um, let's, you know, let's step into it, not just be ignorant and fearful because ignorance breeds fear and you don't know what's, what's down there in the dark. Uh, but instead like, Oh, well, why don't we, why don't we just go spelunking with a flashlight and figure it out? You know, maybe it's a Shangri-La down there that you didn't even realize. Uh, so, yeah. So back to our example, our hypothetical example. I like these because, I mean, we're not giving individual tax advice. We're not giving individual financial advice. We're just talking in general terms, you know, having a conversation here about how things might look. A company like yours or, or you guys might jump in, look at this, and then look at the structure, I guess, straight off the bat and see, does this make sense? Is it overcomplicated? Can we simplify things? Are we using this in the most tax efficient manner? Then what are you guys doing to turn this, this beautiful hotel that's staffed and is up and running into a real money generator? Like where does your smart money add to this? Um, and how far do you go? I suppose. How far? That's a different question, but we'll start with the, the former. Um, so for instance, when people are already acclimated to certain prices, um, so let's take North America, right? In North America, housing prices are not the cheapest. And depending on the jurisdiction within, right? So the U.S., for instance, has 51 jurisdictions within the U.S., and so there's different taxes. There's income taxes, there's property taxes, um, sales tax, uh, you know, VAT, what have you. And they run the gamut. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there can be a pretty big spread and variance. So if, there are, if somebody's already acclimated and they're living, um, you know, and right now is actually an interesting time because there's a, a, a migration of people who are looking at their life and looking like, well, why do I live in this small place and have a low, a lower quality of life, quality of living? Uh, oh, because it's close to the office. Okay, but I'm locked out of the office. So wait a second. Now this kind of, it, it starts shifting paradigms. Wait a second. Why don't I live where I love instead of live where I can afford that's, you know, within an hour commute of the office, so to speak. And you, we have the ability to do something very similar in the sense that you could be in the, in some town that you're in, that you live in that, because you can afford it because it's close to work. And all of a sudden we can, as far as properties goes, you know, having developments in other countries, uh, we get to cherry pick these. It is, it is amazing how we can come in and basically we create the safety security that our customers want because it's all about it. A business is not just a business for nothing. It's not like uh, just trading paper and so on. Sure. You can make money at times doing that, but really a business needs to provide value to a customer. And then it's, it's for commensurate pay. So when somebody's buying a product, if they're already acclimated to a $300,000 house um, and it's not a place they're in love with, but, and, and I'm being conservative in many jurisdictions I know, and that's a little higher than average than others, but if they're already acclimated to that and the quality of life is so much lower, why not be able to provide something that 
our cost might be really low, but then we're still able to sell, uh, say, a house, let's say, in that example, for $300,000. It's something where we're providing value. Uh, who's to say what the margin should be, right? Should, funny word. Um, it's whatever a market bearing price is. And as long as we're providing of value where people, and then people don't have buyer's remorse. It's not a matter of hard sell timeshares, anything like that, right? I don't believe in that kind of thing. Um, it's a matter of people are raving fans. You know, they like it, they love it, and then they become raving fans. And then good luck stopping them, telling all their friends <laughs> about how wonderful this place is, how the water's cleaner than it is back home. The air is cleaner. Um, the, the climate is perfect, monkeys in the trees, watching the sunset on the beach, whatever that may be. And so we can do a level of, uh, I don't know, adventure gentrification, so to speak. So you have all the creature comforts of, of home. And I'm just using that one example of, you know, something that's terrestrial and, and brick and mortar, so to speak. What if you have screaming internet that's faster than you do at home? What if you have sunsets every day? Uh, what if you wake up to the toucans and the trees? Uh, you know, these are some amazing things that for a lot of people, it's just a dream. And actually here's uh, a stat that I'm sure you or some of, some of uh, your folks already, you know, 62% of Americans don't have passports. And that number's up since 9-11. Because mind you, prior to 9-11, right? Less than 20 years ago, prior to 9-11, you could take a driver's license in the U.S. and you could go to Mexico, to Canada, to the Bahamas, right? And then that, that stopped. So then some folks, a lot more, got passports. But that means 38%. Uh, either they can't even go out of the U.S. and experience something and open their eyes and have a level of adventure of, you know, oh, they don't speak English. Cool. They don't look the same as me. Great. Mm -hmm. The food's different. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> the air is different. The food is different. The culture's different. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. And what can you do better? Uh, you know, pardon my little soapbox here, but what can you do better for the next generations? We as parents, I'm a parent, we want better for our kids than we had. And that's just, that's indicative of our species. Uh, with a few, you know, narcissistic sociopaths omitted. <laughs> But we want that. So why not actually create it instead of in that, oh, you have to color within the, in the lines. But so with our example, so yeah. you would go out there and you would raise funds for private equity and you would go out there and you would acquire a property like our hypothetical one here. And then would the idea being that you would be doing that value add that we discussed earlier, the smart money, or would this be something that you would be turning over to a management company, you know, how are you going to be able to take something like this and provide value for your investors? So smart money versus hiring a management company. A lot of times the local management is who we want to hire. We want to bring in our dream team. Sometimes we're bringing them in from outside and then, and then they're queuing up and they're finding what are the, what are the local uh, teams as far as, you know, if potentially in a hotel, it's going to take a lot of folks, a lot of staff. Uh, we might bring in our own management who understands the philosophy. And then we start uh, bringing somebody else on who's local so that we can teach them the ways and the culture and what we want. As far as the smart money, 
uh, a lot of times I'll have these folks in my pocket. I might be able to pull them from a different property, a different industry. Um, as far as the, you know, smart money side, the smart money, uh, I like to think is at a higher level because this is where we get to cross pollinate. You know, there's the Rolodex, right? There's the, uh, other industries. So we're bringing in kind of overlapping industries. And wouldn't it be cool if we did this with this? Once we get a proving ground right, for instance, in a model, it might be something that we want to flip. We want to, uh, it's a turnaround. We want to bring it up and then we want to sell it off. It might be something, uh, scalability is a lot of what I look for. Because uh, just to step into something for a project for a couple of years, eh, not really, it's not really what I'm looking for. It's great to have a profit, sure. But truth be told, I'd like to get it right and then start replicating it. And that might be in the same jurisdiction or it might be on other continents and other countries. And we start creating a brand. Um, so for instance, in the case of we're using the hotel example, right? Argentinian hotel. People like variety. People who travel like variety. So in that case, they're going to, even if they love your property, they're only going to come back, you know, maybe two or three times if they're raving fans before we're going to see this attrition and they fade out. And if we're not providing them with another option, they're going to find someone else as another option. They might come back three years later. Oh, hi. It's nice to be back. Feels like home. Great. But how do we provide that? How do we take them within our ecosystem and provide something for them that you already know, like, and trust us. And we'll take you to what's considered an exotic location that all your family is going to tell you is unsafe. Be careful. Look out. Right. And now we'll take you to another one and you get to have that adventure with a safety net. You can be a, you know, an amateur trapezist adventure with the safety net and then another and another and another. And when we get to scale it, that becomes something totally different to where we might sell it off to a larger company, but we might start acquiring properties to build even faster. And I imagine with your own team in place, I mean, you have economies of scale as well. If you have a CMO who works for another company or who works for your organization, you know, or a COO or any type of, you know, your accountants, your lawyers, maybe it wouldn't make sense for them to go in and work 100% of their time on this one project. But if there's a number of projects, I mean, that is that economies of scale. Um, and you have that, that organization and that network of people to work with that you've worked with on other projects. I mean, you've already overcome a lot of the hurdles, the getting to know you phase, the, the romance phase, you know, you know each other and how you work together, what the strong points are. Um, team building and then being able to scale that into new businesses or new industries, I think um, is a lot, there's a lot to say for that. Yeah, I mean, uh, so for instance, you're in Panama, most uh, Americans would, you know, they think of something dangerous, maybe the Panama Papers, what have you, right? My favorite architect that we use is right there in Panama City. Uh, this gentleman got his uh, undergrad and his graduate degrees at Yale and Harvard. Does that sound like some scary guy. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, he's highly educated and has probably a more affluent life than most Americans for sure. But it's, it's stepping out of that ignorance. And uh, as far as the economies of scale, absolutely. We have our, our, our group where we have our core administration and such. And then we have our business units and then we have our holdings within them. And so it's you know the shape of a pyramid, but there's layers and tiers. And we do have that economy scale. We get to negotiate. We have, you know, large globally renowned law firms who vie for our business. 
you know, and they, they will, because we do a, a level of business with them in different jurisdictions, they will uh, do things that are special for us and work with us as a matter of fact, more like partners than as here's your bill compensated, of course, but <laughs> for sure. Makes sense. So I guess, I guess my last question for you, David is kind of, who is this for? Like if someone's listening to this interview and they're going, wow, this is amazing. I want to get involved in offshore hedge funds and private equity and all these types of things. Uh, do people have to be accredited? Is it only for certain nationalities? What are the, what are the barriers to entry for, for someone who might be listening today? Yeah, thanks. So we we respect all of the uh, jurisdictions as far as the local laws. So we only deal with the equivalent of a sophisticated investor, experienced investor. You know, that's uh, UK and EU, uh, America and Canada. The accredited investor. Um, so we only deal with those folks on the investment side. Uh, and there's reasons it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense to stay legal and compliant. Absolutely. It also makes sense so that it's not somebody putting their whole life savings into one you know, one basket, all their eggs in one basket, so to speak. Now, what we've done recently, and we're developing, and there'll be more and more coming out, is that there are a lot more people who are aspiring investors, sophisticated investors, and what have you, accredited investors, than there are accredited investors. So we actually have a sister company that we're providing financial literacy and education to teach how to do that to teach how to, how do I build my income up, my net worth up, what have you, so I do qualify. Um, how do I do such a thing to where uh, I can invest uh, domestically, I can invest globally. And it's really somewhat of a give back uh, because it's, the purpose is to educate people. It's that contribution beyond ourselves. Uh, a lot of uh, we educators who, I'm sorry, uh, investors who've been around for a while, you know, we have that education piece, that contribution piece that we want to give to other people. And it, it, it doesn't kill me, but, you know, it hits me a little bit, a little jab in the ribs when uh, I can't actually deal with somebody. Uh, you know, we just say no, uh, not right now, because of we want to be compliant and abide by local, respect local jurisdictional laws. But what can we do to actually not just say, sorry, kid, go, go read some books, right? But instead we've actually come up with um, a financial education literacy program so that we can start taking folks through the ranks and we can start leading them up to uh, how are they going to, you know, uh, not just save, because saving is one thing. We have this, this mindset that we're raised on that oh, we're going to save and squirrel it away and so on. And you can't, you probably can't save it as fast as uh, inflation will erode it. I mean, just truth be told. Yeah, it's just inflation is going to make that dollar worth less and less. And so the financial education is going to be up to people to do their own homework. They're going to have to show up. They're going to have to plug in. Um, but that is uh, both existing and being augmented as we speak. Love it. Beautiful. David, I certainly learned a ton from today's conversation. I mean, talking about international hedge funds and Private equity is super interesting, and we're very fortunate to have you on the show today. And like I said earlier, I don't think we've ever had anyone on the show to talk about these things. If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to get a hold of you, where can we send them? Go to peakperformanceglobalequity.com slash expat. Perfect. It's a big long one. That is a long one. Peakperformanceglobalequity.com slash expat. And I will make sure that I put a URL show notes for David Ament's episode to that. 
And um, yeah, I encourage people to learn more about what you do, do your due diligence, look into this. Um, I mean, the world is a big place. There's lots of things out there. You know, it doesn't always have to be scary. I mean, it is your guys' responsibility to, uh, to look at these things. I just try to open the door and let you go down the rabbit hole and uh, hopefully you learn something from today. Perfect, David. Thank you so much for your time and I will talk to you soon, okay? Thanks for, uh, so much for having me and see you next time. I have a very big announcement. After a ton of requests for a place for expat and expat hopefuls to network and get to know each other, I decided to start a new Facebook group. It's called the Expat Money Forum, and it's 100% free to join. We literally just started the group, so you can really network and get to know the individuals there. We will be keeping a very close eye on this group, and I already have three awesome moderators volunteer to help me out. So to make it easy on you, I set up a really simple redirect link. All you have to do to join this group right now is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum. We already have a bunch of previous guests from my show in the group, so you can ask your questions directly to the professionals or get help from the people who are on the ground in the country you are interested in being an expat in. So I hope that you will join us in our new Facebook group by going to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum. And I will see you there. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.